Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. And, oh, just a special welcome to the callers and chatters to the show. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show will examine various case examples of when wills don't go as planned such as protest wills, residual estates, and guardianships. In addition, this show will review and explain uh, what are probate records. And we have as a special guest and a returning guest, David E. Patterson. David is a public historian, and he studies people who lived in 19th century Upson County, Georgia, especially those who experienced slavery and Reconstruction. A civilian employee of the U.S. Navy by day, he spends his leisure hours researching and writing local history. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. David has helped manage the Slave Research Forum at AfroGenius.com since about 2001. David immigrated to the U.S. in 1958 from Scotland and was granted U.S. citizenship in 1975. He lives in Norfolk, Virginia, and he is also a new instructor with the Midwest African American Genealogy Institute. So let me give a warm welcome back to David Patterson to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, David. It's great to be back, Bernice. It is great to have you. Now, David, before we even get into the discussion, I just want to mention to you that many individuals have seen the cover of your new book in his own words and want to know more about this book. So please, briefly tell us about your book before we move into the discussion. Thank you, Bernice. Uh, The book is the autobiography of a former slave written um, in the early 1900s. He, di- he died in, uh, in uh, 1917. He was born in 1844 in, believe it or not, Upson County, the county that I study. I, I discovered this autobiography had been donated by family members 
to the Library of Congress in the uh, mid to late 1970s, it had occasionally been cited in in uh, some books, including Eric Foner's Reconstruction, but it had never been published. So I thought it was a really interesting book. I I got the the, the uh, excuse me Library of Congress to to sell me a copy of the uh, of the, the manuscript. I read it and I said this has got to be published. So I you know, and in my typical fashion, I decided to research the Dickens out of it and build footnotes uh, concerning every single person he mentions that I could find any information on. Um, most most of them uh, slaves and former slaves, uh, preachers, people he preached. As he after uh, emancipation, he joined the AME Church and, and became a, an itinerant minister in Georgia. So it, it deals with his life as a slave, his life during Reconstruction, and his ministry, and then after he quit the ministry, his family life, and up, up to the time a few years before his death. It's very interesting, at least it was to me, and I was able to find information on almost all of the people he talks about and uh, put them in the footnotes. So it's, it's local history, it's a piece of national history, as every person's life is, and uh, it was a lot of fun building, and it's available because it was published by Mercer University Press, so it's available through any of the online booksellers uh, or directly from Mercer University Press, or you can order it from your local bookstore or whatever. Okay, well, thank you very much for sharing that information with us. So why don't we get right into reviewing what was discussed in the last episode, the typical actions and uh, probate of a slaveholding estate, uh, the probate process, and then move into when wills don't go as planned. <laughs> Absolutely. Quickly to review what we covered last time. Um, probate records are dealing with the valuable property left by someone who has died. It's a government overseen process that's managed at the county level. The word probate comes from the Latin verb to test or to prove because uh, when a will is presented to probate court, it must be proved to be the valid will and testament of the deceased. But in case you think that probate is only having to do with wills, absolutely not. Probate records are a lot more than just wills. In fact, we find that perhaps half or more of full uh, antebellum slaveholders didn't make wills before they died, and yet their estates were still put through a probate process that was governed by state law uh, to properly oversee and distribute the, the property of the estate for people who died either with or without wills, um, and it was regulated under law at the county level. So uh, different uh, jurisdictions, different states have different laws, and we last time we emphasized that to properly understand what the records are, what you can expect to find, and what the purpose was, that you need to know what the probate laws are for the state that you're researching. Um, it, it, you know, it's ideal if you can actually read the laws for the time period that you're researching, uh, but if you uh, don't have that luxury, at least read a reliable guide that describes the records of the state that you're researching and, and it explains what the, uh, what the probate records are. Um, pretty much most of the common law states use similar processes. Some of them have different names for different parts of the process. 
but they're pretty much all the same. We talked about um, the initial step of the inventory in which you will find the slaves usually named, appraised for a value, sometimes family relationships, so on. We talked about annual returns, which are perhaps the most underused probate records that we have. People oftentimes go straight to the will, straight the, to the inventory, and then straight to the sale. Well, what about all the stuff that happened in between? Especially if the probate process lasted a few years, you're going to find medical records. You're going to find um, indications of births, deaths. You're going to find hiring records. You're going to find lots of miscellaneous information about the people that you're studying in those annual returns. Uh, and, you know, we, we mentioned the uh, final distribution of the estate, um, either by uh, uh, distributing directly to the heirs or, or through a sale. And what we didn't get to, though, was some of the uh, uh, unusual aspects of some, of some probate processes. One of them would be that probate actions only apply to property owned by the deceased. Some people uh, sometimes wonder why a, a particular enslaved person doesn't appear in an inventory. And I had someone say, I think, he might, I think his wife might have owned him. Why wasn't he in the inventory? Well, because it wasn't his property. It was his wife's property. So if, if you are looking for particular people in an estate record, be alert to the fact that the spouse may have owned property in her own name. And if that were the case, the property belonging to the wife would not appear in the husband's estate. Where would you find it? And how would you know if this were the case? Very often, you'll be looking for a prenuptial agreement, a deed of gift or a deed of trust that keeps that property separate for her use. It was, it was very common, especially among some of the wealthier uh, families or, or middle-class families that were slave-owning in the uh, 19th century because sometimes there were, there, there were fears that if the husband got into financial problems, um, then all the wife's property that she brought into the marriage would be, uh, would be lost to creditors and the wife would be impoverished. So her family would sometimes take steps to make sure that even if the husband went broke, she would still have something for her and her children. And, and likewise, uh, widows oftentimes had prenuptial agreements. So that's where you'll find some property records. Just always be aware that uh, the, the estate record of the deceased does not include the spouse's property. Uh, point number two, oftentimes slave-owning husbands left their wives in their wills possession and use of certain property during the wife's earthly lifetime or until she remarried. This is called a life estate because the woman has the property during the rest of her life. Generally, the widow was not allowed to sell the real estate or slaves that were part of her life estate without permission of a court, but other than that, she could pretty well use them and profit from them any way she wanted. Now, the thing about life estates is that they are only set up under wills. So if you have an intestate, meaning no will, um, probate a, a record series, you don't have to worry about life estates. It, they were only set up specifically by some men in their wills. So, okay, I have a question, uh, David. Yeah. 
And the okay. question is, was it common for the wife to have a will after she has passed, and does it depend on the state? This is a question coming from one of our chatters. If the wife held property on her on, on her own account, it was it was very common for her to have a will. Now, the 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 thrust of the question is probably how how common are will, wills from women slaveholders? Not as nearly as common as men, because um, under under the uh, common law rule, when a woman married her property automatically became the property of her husband unless she had executed one of those instruments, legal instruments, ahead of time to keep it separate, the prenup, deed of gift, deed of trust, something like that. But if she was holding property under one of those legal instruments, it was certainly hers to will any way she wanted, and, and you know, and they did. Also, widows, if a widow inherited property from her husband, and did not remarry, that property was hers. And so wills are just as common for women who are in those circumstances as they would be for men. Okay, and then there's a question, and uh, they're not sure that it's the right term, but it's the question is, is that similar to making her a dowager widow? A dowager widow? Um, oh, yes. I'll have to pass on that one. I'm not sure what the term means. Okay. So. Okay, con continue. We we just want to keep hearing you share with us the information. <laughs> By the way, I hope everyone was able to download the records of probate for a typical slaveholding estate. I, I put the two links up there for the explanation as well as the diagram so that individuals can know that that information is available for you to download. Oh, okay, David. Right, and uh, the uh, okay, the life estate, the life estate property we're talking about, um, the widow may receive under under certain wills that were specifically given to her property that she can use during her lifetime, and and sometimes it's restricted to say that if she remarries, she she loses it also. Uh, um, what happens is that if she dies or when she dies or remarries, that property goes back to the original estate. This is important for research purposes because if you are dealing with a will in which you notice that the wife received some slaves or other property under a life estate for her lifetime or widowhood, um, you are not going to be looking for that property to be, to be disposed of by her in a will. When she dies, you're going to look for that property to be going back to the executor of the original estate of the guy that died, and you're going to see that property distributed as what's called a residual estate. It's the residue of the estate that came back to be distributed. Now, the, the impact of this is if the widow lived for a long time, you might be looking at years and years of this property um, being in her possession until she finally dies and then gets probated under the terms of the original will from years ago. So if, you, if you've come across that circumstance, find out when the widow died, then look into the probate records for the original, uh, the original um, uh, testator who, who made the will, 
look shortly after her death or within a year or so after her death and, and look for the probate records to pick back up to deal with this residual estate. And again, look in the original county where the testator died. Don't worry about the county where she died because it's not being probated as her property. It's being probated as his. Okay, so that's, that's um, residual estates and life estates. Two terms, same thing. Um, last but not least that I wanted to mention before I forgot, that if a slaveholder left minor heirs, chances are almost certain that the court will appoint a guardian for the children. Sometimes each children got a separate guardian. depends how they wanted to work it. And the guardian would have to submit annual returns to the court, usually the same court that, uh, that handled probate. And guess what? The annual returns contain the same type of content as the, as the estate probate returns. So if you have an estate that um, is settled and the property was divided among minor heirs, you can still find that really great information in the annual returns that are going to be submitted every year by the, by the guardians until the minor child turns 21 or gets married. So those are the three things that I really didn't get to talk about last time. So now we can go ahead and, uh, and get into tonight's topic of the challenging wills. When wills don't work out the way uh, the testator intended, oh, by the way, infants, I've been talking about minor heirs. Um, you know how you, you come, you're reading these legal documents, how often do you come across documents talking about infants? And we think of infants as babies in their mother's arms. But in 19th century legal talk, an infant was the child of, a, of its father until age 21. So if, you, if, you're, um, if your dad dies and the legal documents are talking about your dad's infants, it might be you if you're not 21 years old. So anyway, just throwing it. Oh, as, that's as interesting. I had no idea that it could be someone up to the age of 21 and they would be called an infant. Right, because they weren't of legal age, so they were still technically under the uh, um, under the governance of of a of a, a guardian who was in you know in in the place of the father, and um, uh, so you would be an infant in, le in legal terms. I don't know. I doubt wow. the people. Uh, I doubt that people use that term in common everyday um, conversation that way, but when you're dealing with the legal documents. Um, and the other thing is you'll sometimes come across the, the, the uh, seemingly strange um, circumstance that the guardians for children are very often all male relatives. And you think, why isn't the mother the guardian? Sometimes the mother was appointed a guardian in which case she was called the um, the child's natural guardian. But uh, very often it was thought that uh, um, a male person would be a better guardian for the child in that that person would have the ability to make legal decisions on behalf of the child. And, and, and not, that the, not that the child might not necessarily be with the mother, but the guardian for terms of managing the child's property might be a male relative. So that's kind of right. interesting, too. Mother it is. But we have a garden. question. We have someone yep. on the line, and so I'm going to uh, have them ask their question. Do uh, you have a question or a comment, 
Michael I Caine. must say, you are on a roll. Brilliant. You're absolutely brilliant, and that's why I listen to you. All right. And, and who are you, sir? This is Michael Caine, legend of stage and screen. All right. Okay, so I'm glad to hear that Michael Caine believes that you are brilliant, which is wonderful. And so let's continue on with this discussion tonight uh, about challenging wills. Absolutely. And and uh, as sort of a preface to that, you know, when, when people wrote their wills, they kind of wrote them because they thought people were going to carry them out the way uh, the way they wrote them. Um, I did come across an interesting example from, from our point of view, from the, from the topics that we research, where even though a will wasn't challenged, it wasn't carried out right. For example, um, in Upton County, William Ellerby uh, strictly forbade his executors to sell the slaves who he called the principal of my property other than what lands I own. So he regarded... The, the, the slaves as, as his principal property that he definitely did not want sold and he wanted it reserved for his children. But within two years of the estate entering probate in 1837, the executors had sold three out of the six slaves. So it just goes to show that, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. You can always uh, break the terms of a will. But even more seriously, sometimes after a, a, a testator passed, there were unsatisfied heirs. And what they would do, they would go into court to challenge the will. And the process was a caveat, which those of you who uh, remember your, your Latin phrase, caveat emptor, remember that caveat means beware. And so a caveat is telling the probate court, beware that this will that you may be certifying is not in fact, a good will, and we're here to challenge it. So what kind of reasons might a person caveat a will? Basically the same reasons that people do it today. They say that the testator was incapable of making a will because they did not have a sound mind or did not understand what they were signing or that they really did not intend the will to say what it says. They, they really meant to say something else. Or another one, undue influence, that the testator was unduly influenced to write the will a certain way by certain people. You know, the old, um, you know, Mama was really, really old, and, and Sister Susie lived in the house, and Sister Susie was there with Mama every day telling her this and telling her that, and that's why Sister Susie uh, was left the entire estate and the rest of us were cut out, and because she had undue influence. And Mama didn't really want it that way, but she was she was frail. Okay, another one, incorrect form. That perhaps the will was not prepared in in the legal form. Perhaps not enough witnesses, or perhaps the witnesses who were also named in the will as heirs, or perhaps the will had not been signed by the testator. So there are reasons that people could caveat the will. And why do we care? Because, well, before you do that, we have a question, yep. though. How long okay. would challenges last in, in court proceedings? I'm sorry, say it again, please. How long would challenges last in court proceedings? When could it take years and years yes. with the various challenges? Yes. Um, 
first of all, the the challenge might challenges usually came to the court pretty quickly after the will was presented, but but there was really no rule about how long it would uh, people could wait before they were challenging the will, unless there was a special law. I know in the 18 in 1845 Georgia put a put a statute of limitations of seven years if you didn't uh, caveat the will too bad. Um, but uh, once it was challenged, and if it was a lengthy process, it could be years. The example that I'm going to, to give you first took eight years. And from a research point of view, the reason that we can get excited about that is that eight years of having to submit records to the court, annual returns, and so on, provides lots of grist for our research mill. So we like caveated wills from oh, the yes. research point. Absolutely. Uh, sometimes, sometimes the outcomes of the wills uh, or the outcomes of the cases were not quite as happy perhaps for the people involved as, as otherwise, but from a research point of view, lots and lots of documentation. Now, I do want to talk about where you will find these records. Because probate is a county uh, process. Initially, probate court had the first jurisdiction. So you're going to look in probate court. If the people were dissatisfied with the probate judge's ruling, then, oh, by the way, if, if the probate judge ruled that the, that the will was invalid, then it was treated as an intestate. In other words, the will was thrown out and it was as if there was never a will, and it was handled the same way as intestate uh, estates. But if the probate judge said, yeah, the will is good, and the caveators were not satisfied, they could appeal to the next uh, higher-level county court. In Georgia, that was Superior Court. Um, in other places, it might have a different name, a Circuit Court, other places. And then it could be appealed all the way up to the state Supreme Court. One thing that's kind of fun, if you have time, have you, has anybody out there ever just browsed through state Supreme Court um, appeal cases that were published annually uh, in, in court reporters' uh, books? You can find them online through Google Books, or you can go down to a your, your local law library just hang out. Browse through them for the antebellum period. Filled with interesting cases if you want to see how things work. Um, right, and there's a, a question, and I think that yep. you, you're almost you're answering the question in a way. The question is, uh, if the will was thrown out, would there be a record of it? And it sounds like you're saying there will be a record. There will not. Um, if the will was thrown out, then, by definition, it would not be it would not be entered into record. In other words, it will not be usually it will not be recorded in the will book. No, no, you know, unless it was one of those ones that wasn't challenged until years later. But generally, mm -hmm. if, if if somebody marches into the probate judge's office and says, you know, here's John Smith's will, and uh, you know, brother Jimmy and sister Sue follow right behind and say, no, it's not, no, it's not. You know, and 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 it turns out that the will gets thrown out. That piece of paper probably never gets recorded. So okay. if there was any information, yeah, any information that was in that will that would be of use to us, you probably won't see it because if it was thrown out, it won't. It by definition is not entered into the record. 
Okay, that's what. Now, we do have a question uh, again. The the same guest would like to ask you a question, and so I'm going to bring Michael Kane back on. Okay, so, Michael, what is your question? I wanted to talk a little bit about my dear departed friend, David Bowie. Okay, he didn't have a question, and so we're, we will continue uh, after the break with this discussion. So we're going to take a quick break and then come back on, okay? All right. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests shared a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Now, you have been listening to David Patterson share what happens when wills don't go as planned. And I want to bring David back on so that he can continue this discussion. All right. Our first example of a will that was caveated that uh, left a trail of really fascinating paperwork. And in Upson County, no big surprise, the Bunkley case. Macarene Bunkley, she was a widow, an elderly widow, who lived in Upson County. At the time that she died, she held 63 enslaved women, men, and children. She had drafted various versions of her will, and the last version that she had drafted was taken to uh, to court to be probated, and a dissatisfied relative who felt that uh, she was being slighted challenged the will. This was in 1850. Um, the usual processes began. There was an inventory and appraisement, and there were annual returns, and the annual returns indicated a lot of interesting things, including, oh, just to, you know, for example, um, medical care, hiring out people who were hired out, who they were hired out to, how much they earned for the estate. Of course, they didn't get to keep the hire. Um, lots of medical bills. Childbirth, 
uh, one particular example I was very interested in to see in seeing was uh, there was a, a, a couple named Betty and Randall. They had a child, several children. One of them was named Airy. And I noticed that in 1855, after the estate had been uh, in this uh, uh, limbo state while the appeal was going on for five years, um, James Anderson, the medical doctor, um, charged medicines for Airy and for Sarah, uh, more medicines, more medicines. And then here was one from Dr. Blaylock for services and attention for the girl Airy while in childbed, February of 1856. So Airy apparently had a, had a child or was going through childbirth in February of 1856. Um, she also had a miscarriage in 1857. Uh, and then we see when the estate finally gets settled, not to spoil the surprise, but it really does get settled, in 1858, Airy and two children were sold to Nathan Respus. Now, the two children were not named, but we know that Airy had this child in February of 1856, and, uh, and, be, and she apparently had another child because there were two sold to Nathan Respus. Now, one of the things in genealogy and history we always do is we always connect records. So I said, what do I have on Nathan Respus? So I went and looked in my Nathan Respus file. And there, lo and behold, in March of 1858, shortly after he had purchased Airy and two children from the McEwen Bunkley estate, his um, Airy's, Airy and two children were given in trust to Leonard J. Worthy for Nathan's daughter, Mary M. Worthy. And Airy is described as a woman 22 years old with two children, Bill and Jane. So now the two children who were anonymous in the Macarin Bunkley estate have names, Bill and Jane. And we also have a name for, I mean, an age for Airy. But we also know that Bill, since he's named first, is the older child. So he was almost certainly the child born in February of 1856. He's described as a boy um, three years old in January of 1859. So that puts, puts him right there. Uh, the time that uh, Blaylock was looking after Harry in childbed. So these are the, these are the connections you can make. And this this uh, this second document was was a, was a uh, deed, but the first document was an annual return of a doctor's bill in a probate estate. Something that people often overlook. So that was just an example out of many that uh, are interesting. In here, um, the estate also includes the uh, names of the overseers, how much they were paid every year, the work their overseers' wives did. The overseers' wives seemed to uh, to spend their time sewing clothes for the slaves, and, and the over and the overseer got paid for his wife's work. Um, anyway, Macaroon Bunkley's will that was that was being challenged, caveated. Um, she carefully considered the kinship ties among the enslaved as she apportioned them among five legatees. After all, she had quite a large slave force, so it was relatively easy for her to keep people in families. So the will kept people in families. And she also dictated that each member of her enslaved family 
upon her death, should receive a black suit and a cash gift, not less than $5 and not more than $30 per person. So, you know, she wanted quite an assembly of mourners at her funeral, dressed in black with money in their pockets. Um, what was Macker and Bunkley like? One thing about the the uh, caveat is they bring in all kinds of witnesses to show that she wasn't of sound mind. They talk about, um, let me pull out my Macri and Bunkley file here. They they talk about the fact that she confused about the time. The overseer testifies that once she told me and my wife to hitch up the mules and take all the Negroes to meeting. I told her there was no meeting, and she stood me down that there was, and at length I satisfied her there was none. Uh, I thought from this that she was not in her right mind at times. So this was a woman who enjoyed taking all of her slaves to church. Um, Another thing that we find out from the caveat testimony is that she also enjoyed possum hunting. Another witness says, Sometimes the little Negroes would come in of nights, and she would ask them if they had a fat possum for her. And she would, in a playful way, say to them, Come, let's go possum hunting. So you can imagine this old lady going possum hunting. I'm not sure how that would work out, but she liked to talk about it. And she also had um, two slaves who were married but belonged to different owners. She owned a man named Dave, and Dr. Thomas Anderson, her neighbor, uh, owned Fanny. And the uh, testimony goes into a great deal about negotiations between Anderson and Macron Bunkley about purchasing Fanny and describes her as a woman about 27 years old um, and that the sale was made in about 1849 for $700, Macker and Bunkley reached into her purse and pulled out $700 in cash. Talks about the negotiation, and this was to go to show that Macker and Bunkley was actually a sharp negotiator and that she still did have her wits about her because she knew how to make a bargain. Uh, in the testimony, we hear that Macker and Bunkley says, um, the reason for purchasing said Negro was if she did not purchase her, that Fanny's husband, Dave, would frequently be off when she wanted him at home. She also said she had plenty of Negroes without Fanny and would not have purchased her but for that reason mentioned. So, in other words, she not only, you know, it, it, it describes her negotiation saying, I don't really need another slave, but, you know, I'm only doing this for the convenience uh, of making sure that my man doesn't always run off to visit his wife at Dr. Anderson's house. But on the other hand, it also tells us something about the relationship of those two people. So It really does. This this uh, file is just full of a wealth of information. Yeah. And, and then the last uh, example from this lengthy court case is um, that, uh, again, to say that she didn't have a sound mind, Windows does not think her mind was sound. Um, she frequently called upon some person by the name of Peggy. In other words, Macron Buckley had an imaginary friend and would talk as though she was conversing with her. The witness knew no such person and asked Mr. Bunkley 
or Mrs. Bunkley, who Peggy was. And Mrs. Bunkley said she was dressed very well, sometimes in calico, sometimes in silk, and that she was very good-looking. And then she frequently called upon the Negroes to get the horses ready and carry her to Cherokee County to say that she was tired of the place. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, oh, she would frequently call upon someone to get the dogs and go with her to get a possum hunting. So these were things, that apparently, apparently these were things that indicated that the old lady was not perhaps in her right mind. Sounds to me like she liked to have a good time myself. Yeah, uh, but anyway, it does sound like that, but, <laughs> it, it, but they were trying things, to discredit her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it kind of all these things were not intended to, to shed light on life in her household, but they do. What was it like what was it like living in, in this widow's household? By the way, her uh, her tombstone says and she had a very expensive tombstone. It's I've 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 actually been there and, and looked at it. It says being childless, she was much attached to her slaves, most of whom she had reared. She acted toward them as a friend and protectress and would gladly have liberated them from servitude, could she have done it under the sanction of the laws of the land? Kind of self-serving, because if she really wanted to liberate them, she could have taken them to Ohio and done it herself. But, you know, but it would be that as it may, you get the impression that she, she loved, she wanted company, and she wanted to have people around. And, you know, and uh, the whole thing about the, uh, the, the black suits and the pocket money for them to attend her funeral indicate that she really did, she was lonely without the folks. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, after eight years of litigation, uh, an estate that was valued at somewhere between dollars and $120,000 uh, was declared intestate, the will was broken, and at a cost of $22,000 in legal and administration fees. There were nine lawyers involved. Two of them died during the proceeding. It went so long. So one-fifth of the value of the state went to legal fees and administration fees. Um, so what was the outcome? Well, that was the outcome for the heirs. You know, it, it became an intestate estate and was, and was broken up in accordance with the rules of, this, of Georgia law for intestate estates. What was the impact of, on the slaves? Um, the breaking of Macker and Bunkley's will had a far greater impact on each of the enslaved than the loss of their black suit or dress and their $30 bequest. Uh, on March 2nd, 1858, and by this time, uh, by this time there were 80, you know, I told you it was 63 slaves when she died. There were, oh, I thought I'd written it down. 87. Now there are 87. So there's a lot of a lot of children born. Uh, on March 2nd, 1858, while Macklin Barclay's bones peacefully moldered under her white marble monument, her 87 surrogate family members, as she imagined them, were loaded onto the morning train from the rock, transported to Thomaston, marched to the courthouse steps, and auctioned off to 27 buyers from several counties. This was the largest slave sale in Upson County history. Um, wow. Kind of a sad this, ending because... Yes, it is. After eight years. After eight years. And they and, yeah. and so they didn't, obviously they did not go through with what she wanted, 
but this nope. is this is sad, and I'm getting uh, comments. Outrageous, amazing. I mean, really heartbreaking. Yes, it was because uh, you know had the had the will been maintained. I mean, I mean, the people would have been slavery, but she was she did make an effort to keep people in families. Of course, the the slave sale, as typical slave sales did. The only families that counted were mothers and their dependent smallest children up to about eight years old. So since there were uh, 87 people uh, sold off among 27 different buyers, and we know where they went, um, you know, you, clearly there were a lot of families broken. So Right. And, and I get... mean, there's a question here, uh, were all of the names of the 87 uh, slaves outlined in the will? No, because uh, well, most of the most of the sixty three were. Remember, the eighty seven had been born. You know, the rest, you know, from sixty three to eighty seven were people who had who had been born during the intervening eight years. Most of those names appear um, in the documents that were generated during the probate, including the the sale. Now, in some cases, very young children it may say something like you know, Peggy and two children. Um, and in the example that I gave you, Aryan two children. Those two children hadn't been born when the will was written, and the uh, the estate records didn't say what their names were. But when I looked it up in uh, Nathan Respus's deed, the guy that bought them, he did name the two children. So by connecting different records, you can put the pieces together and and cross connect them. So. Um, but in general, I think the thrust of the question was, did the will name the, name the slaves? Yes. It also named husband, wife, and children. So it named them by families. And, and then there's a question, have you found any of the descendants of the slaves? I haven't, um, I haven't done that as a project. I'm too busy. Uh, working on trying to identify anybody who was ever a slave in Epson County, up mm -hmm. to about, up to maybe somewhere between five and seven thousand right now. So looking for descendants, too big of a project for me. Now, in my book, um, House in Hartsville Holloway, in his own words, I have been in contact with descendants. In fact, I got photographs from them that are in the book of him and his family. And I have uh, I got other documents from them. So and I and after the book was published, another branch of the family contacted me through Valencia, uh, a branch of the family that I hadn't been able to contact before, and we've been talking since then. And they say they have even more documents for me. Too late for the book, but never too late for me because you know I'm always eternally acquisitive. Yes. Well. Yes, well, there's a question concerning the will that you just reviewed with us. Is it online mm -hmm. for viewing? Because others would really like to just look at this, this document. Um, the straight answer is yes. It's on, one of the things that FamilyChurch.org has done that has been a huge boon to me and saves me from having to go from courthouse to courthouse like I thought I was going to have to do. They have um, scanned the microfilm of all the Georgia County 
probate records of that era and put them online as image files. So if you go to familysearch.org and you search for uh, Georgia probate records, you can find they're arranged by county, and when you click on the county, it gives you all all the uh, um, the book titles. Some of the books are combined more than one book into one uh, microfilm. But basically, I'm sure the will book is there. It's will book A. And oh, excuse me, that's right. It, forget everything I just said because the will was overturned. So no, the will is not available online. It is not. How did I get the will? Because it was part of the, the court record. And the court record um, is uh, in the in Epson County Court, and it's also in the state Supreme Court. So, yeah, I, I, I made a Xerox copy of, of the, uh, of the uh, uh, appeal and the caveat, which had the will in it. So I take it back. That particular will is not. But we can have another break anytime. I can do a quick Google search and see if see if the Georgia Supreme Court court reporter put uh, put the will in the court report. Okay, we'll take a just a quick quick break, and while we're taking this break, I will just uh, mention to you all: Have you ordered your copy of Our Ancestors, Our Stories? Well, this collaborative book offers insights into the African-American experience in Edgefield County, South Carolina, through the eyes of five very different authors. These family historians and storytellers have come together to share their stories to inspire and encourage others and to keep alive the memories of their ancestors. Order your copy today from www dot or Amazon and please read my story searching for my South Carolina kin. So David, have you found the where we might be able to locate that will? Well believe it or not, I'm just opening it up now. So Okay. Let's see, let's see if it's uh, let's see if it's in here. Um because while we're while we're while I'm looking at this, I might as well say that I had really promoted re- people reading the court reporter printed reports of Supreme Court cases, which are very interesting. But also keep in mind that the court reporter is interested in picking out the highlights of the testimony that apply to the point of law that's at issue and the decisions of the judges. So these are by necessity abbreviated. People often think it's the entire court case. It's not. It's an abbreviated report of the court case that is um, printed for the use of lawyers and, and, and to, to understand and educate about, about the decision of the court. The actual full court case is usually held in, in the archive of the Supreme Court of the state. For example, I was very interested in a uh, court case in North Carolina uh, a slave dealer that I was researching, and the court reporter had a oh a, a few pages summarizing the case. I went and had him pull the original court case file out. It was over a hundred pages, so um, there's a lot of information that is really valuable for us as historians and genealogists that's not in 
the printed um very this this particular extract is very useless no I'm afraid that the will does not appear to have been um extracted in full in this court case. Let me scroll back to the top, make sure I'm looking at the right case. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it's extremely abbreviated. No. So I'm sorry to say that it's not available. I wish it was. I would uh, link to it or buy it an electronic copy and post it. But uh, one nice thing that the Georgia Supreme Court did was uh, they like you know to have multiple copies of the of the appeal cases, and you will usually find them printed like booklets. This particular book, the McLaren Bunkley um, Appeal, um, is 93 pages. Well, actually, more than 93 pages. I stopped copying at 93. So, and um, and I found a copy of it in the Upson County Courthouse. I'm sure there's another copy up in Atlanta, but. Uh, Anyway, I'm, I apologize. I don't have a copy of the will. Okay. Well, but I do have another example. Was, okay, give us another example. Yes. All right. Here's one. Um, an equally long case. Um, this is a case uh, of, coincidentally, about 1850, so within two years of Macarin Bunkley. Um, and this was the case, uh, the Hightower case. The, the Hightower will... Um, James Hightower died in 1850, and uh, his will was also uh, challenged based upon uh, uh, mental incapacity. Um, <laughs> and similar evidence was introduced to show that either uh, he 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 was absent-minded, or that he was sharp as a tack and was really a great negotiator. Um, for example. Um, and where is it? Well, well, in one in one example, uh, having to do with his negotiating abilities with a slave trader, a slave trader named Abrams from Virginia camped at James Hightower's plantation, and the and the witness testimony says, "quote Several of Hightower's Negroes came to the camp." Um, surely visits like this were common opportunities for enslaved folk to share news, inquire about distant kin. But one of Hightower's men visited the camp several times and cultivated a matrimonial interest in one of the women in the slave trader's uh, wares, named Mary. Abrams detected his interest, and perhaps he and the bondman had discussed the subject on previous days, because the evening when it was an evening when Abrams said to the man if he would pick out a wife, and the man answered, I have already done that. Abrams said, you cannot have her unless your master will buy her. Now, Blassingame, a man named Blassingame, who was Abrams' local agent, recounted those negotiations. Hightower claimed he would purchase Mary because his man, quote, had taken a liking to her for a wife while we had been there, that this Negro was a dutiful Negro, and some short time before then he had lost his wife, and and he he Hightower would purchase the woman to gratify him. He did so from sympathy with his Negro man, not because he needed any more slaves. And Abrams Abrams told him the Negro 
would be a certain price. Hightower bargained with him, and Abrams sold the Negro for $100 less than he had been asking, you know, showing what a great negotiator Hightower was. So clearly he was of sound mind when he made his will. Abrams or Hightower told Abrams he would give so much and no more and said he only did it to accommodate his Negro man. If Abrams chose to take it, he might do so. If not, he could let it alone. And at length, Abrams agreed to take it. James Hightower paid $900 for her. She was a likely young woman, some 20-odd years of age. I don't think that Hightower gave higher for the Negro than the price we usually sold at. We sold Persons, who was Jones Persons, another uh, planter in the same neighborhood. We sold Persons a girl for $1,000, no better than the one we sold Hightower. And we sold two other Negroes to others for 1100 of extra qualities. So it's interesting that this entire uh, visit to the camp, the, the fact that the slave trader is camping out in James Hightower's plantation while he uh, uh, sells his wares in the neighborhood, and that James Hightower's workers come to the camp to visit with the people there. And um, one of them, you know, picks out a wife and, and persuades his master to buy him. All this in this has nothing to do with the will, but it has a lot to do with supposedly Hightower's frame of mind. Um, let's see. Uh, what's another example? Oh, we learned that, you know, from the from the sublime to the absurd, I have no idea why this was in there. It was It was brought up that Hightower threw up at the dinner table in Edwards Hotel. And I don't know why that was in there, but... Oh, you my goodness. Of, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you, um, you learn that uh, uh, James M. Cox says, I know some of the Negroes named in the will. I know Mike and his wife Susie and a number of their children. I am the present overseer where the old lady lives. There are two boys and four girls and some little ones. I don't know how many there were off. I know a housewoman named Anne. She has four children. The house girl is named Matilda and is one of Anne's children. Anne's youngest can't walk. There are none of Anne's children able to walk except the one who stays in the house. She is about the size of a small plow hand. Susie don't look so very old. Matilda, the one who stays in the house, is a child of Anne. So we learn a little bit about what people were doing, what their duties were, who was in the house, you know. <laughs> and because um, we we have the names elsewhere, but we don't know these details. Right, uh, right. And there's a comment yeah. in the in the chat uh saying I'm I'm always curious as to whether descendants of these cases are aware of this history. Uh though I know the answer is most likely no. It's just that, I mean, these cases are out there, and people just are not aware of the fact that these records are there. That's right, and they're there for somebody to find. I mean, it's my hobby, so I, I go out there and find these things and and put them, put the details together, connect connect the different records, and, and try to tell stories. That's uh, what I want to do eventually is to write stories the stories of people who lived in Upson County from the little bits and pieces that I gleaned from these records. So um, 
<laughs> I know we've been on for we an just, hour. We just need to encourage individuals to, to go to the various counties. I mean, even if you can find your record, as you just mentioned, Family Search uh, has records online that uh, perhaps individuals could go and look at those records, and also Ancestry has mm-hmm. uh, various records online. So it's something that we need to kind of go beyond looking in the census and start looking at what's happening in these uh, these wills and these deeds and other other documents that can give us a better idea of what's happening in those stories. Exactly. Right, so, right. What well, we do, we do have a, a question coming in, and let's see okay. uh, what what the caller has to say. Okay, you're live. Do you have a question or a comment? Yeah, I don't know if you're talking to me or not, but yes, I am. Oh, okay, great. Well, good evening. Good evening. Good I, evening. Uh, just had just stumbled upon your program here. And I am, and for a number of years, have been so very interested in wills and trusts and estate planning. And I was just overwhelmed to find out there is a program on talking about uh, those subjects. How often are are you on? Uh, I broadcast every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Thursday, and it's on a variety night. of it's a variety of topics, history and okay. genealogy. Oh, fantastic! Thursday, that what time did you say again? Nine o'clock. But all Nine. shows are a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and so there's okay. about two hundred and twenty plus episodes that you can go back and listen to. Oh, fantastic! Okay, great. Well, uh, I thank you for taking my question. And thank you for tuning into the show. Sure. Okay, David, do you have any other cases you want to uh, share with us, or are we at the point where we're ready to wrap up the show? Well, I think think we're at the point where we can go ahead and, and, and wrap it up. I do, there was one thing I just came across as I was scrolling through my notes that I've been you mentioned the James Hightower case and, and whether he was of sound mind or not. And I just found one that connected him to the other case. He, one of the witnesses says, I knew James Hightower some, for some 22 years. And near the close of 1850, I went to Mrs. Bunkley's sale to hire a Negro. Uh, I spoke to his son James about the hiring of the Negro before I saw James Hightower. He told me I could get the Negro woman for $50. Directly, he turned for me to talk with someone else from Barnesville to hire a Negro girl. The old man was sitting before the fireplace in the house. So here's the scene. He's sitting in Macarin Bunkley's house while her estate sale is going on. This is not the slave sale. This was the uh, initial estate sale of of the movable property. And he's there uh, hiring slaves to other people hiring slaves from other people, all these negotiations, when people went to these these estate sales, it was not only a social event, but it was a business event. People were buying, people were selling, and not necessarily anything to do with the estate. So he's sitting in Macron Buckley's house in front of her fire negotiating with people about hiring other people's slaves. The old man was sitting before the fireplace in the house, and I approached the old man from behind and asked him, what could I hire the woman for? He said he did not know. I told him he was she was worth forty dollars. 
et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, um, that's that's about all. But it's full of stories like this. And um, yes, and I have a, a a question coming out of the chat. Do you also have depositions and testimonies from folks living in other states? Uh, and this is Selma, and she's uh, mentioning that she has seen that. Depositions from people from other states? Other states, it, yes. Um, if the thrust of the question is, do depositions from people exist in the, rec- in the legal records of other states? Absolutely. Yes, uh, have yes. I seen depos- If the question is, have I seen depositions in Upson County court cases from people in other states, the answer is also yes, because there was a provision in um, in civil cases, not criminal cases, in civil cases that uh, if, if the witness lived a long way away, which would include other states, that um, a list of questions, which were called interrogatories, could be drawn up, and the person, the list would be sent to a lawyer in another location. That person would go interview the witness, and the interrogatories and the answers would be sent back and made a part of the, the trial record. Um, many times, many jurisdictions, if the case wasn't appealed, much of the court record has been either thrown away or got lost over the years, but especially if the court case was appealed, interrogatories and answers are part of the record. I'm fortunate that uh, court clerks didn't throw anything away in Upson County, so I have lots and lots of depositions, and some of them are from other states. Um, Okay. Interesting stories for another time. Yes, indeed. Well, do you have any closing remarks before we close out the show tonight? Absolutely. Just remember, when you're dealing with probate records, it's a process. Uh, Learn what the learn what the state required. Learn what a court was that the probate was uh, was handled in, and look at all the records. Take that chart that I made that. uh, Bernice Bennett gave the link to. Uh, follow the process through. Don't forget to look at annual returns. And um, I think you will be excited about some of the results that you find. Thank you so very much. I mean, you have really uh, just stimulated my juices. I want to go and look into some records tonight. So, everyone, I just want to just say good evening, and thank you so much, David Patterson, for joining us again tonight. And please remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Bibby's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, David. Good night, Bernice. Good night, everyone.